So this morning is May 31st, it's Sunday morning 2009. Our message this morning is going to be dwell or live. Dwell or live. Before we get into this word though, I want to tell you a little bit about these Mexico trips. Y'all go ahead and flip on the lights and stuff for me. Uh, John went with me this last time, Abel went with me this last time, and my little son Gabriel, my youngest son, went with me. It's his first trip. And I don't know how many of you know exactly what our weeks have been like lately, but the devil has thrown everything at us but the kitchen sink. And so I was a little nervous taking my youngest son uh, to Mexico right now, but I am, uh, I'm intent on not allowing the devil to keep us from doing anything we would normally do. And uh, we packed up lots and lots of meat with Jordan Ministries. They provided the meat. And uh, we drove to the border that we always cross, I have smuggled more things through that border than you can imagine. This church has bought hundreds of sheets of tin to fix roofs, all kinds of things. And we've always gotten through. I mean, I've been searched before, you know, we've, we've had to be creative, but I have never not gotten through. And uh, when we pulled up this time, they pulled us into a bay to search us and uh, came to the window and said, the meat will not pass. You cannot pass the meat. It's unprocessed. And... Abel worked with me, you know, I thank God Abel was there, he could, he could speak to the folks, and he said, these are for the starving children in Matamoros. I thought about it and said, the meat will not pass, turn around. Well, this presents a huge problem because I'm not actually in Mexico and I'm also not in the United States, I'm between the two, and now I have to come back into the United States with ice chests full of meat that they think is from Mexico. And uh, I called the missionaries that we were with, and they were just lamenting because they knew what this meant. This meant the U.S. Customs officials were going to throw our meat away. The meat that was to feed these kids. I mean, they were waiting on the food. So we got to the next border, crossing the U.S. side, and uh, she began to question us, and she said, what do you have to declare? And we said, nothing. And uh, she said, what about all those ice chests and all that stuff back there? And uh, it just hit me. And uh, I said, you know, uh, we've not even been into Mexico. We have friends that are in Harlingen, and uh, we're going back to meet them. See, we got ahead of our party, and now we're just trying to go back to meet that party. So we didn't actually go into Mexico, and that's why there's nothing to declare. You really don't need to look at the stuff. As she's walking back to the coolers. She said, are you all citizens? I said, yes, we are. But he's not for John because John is a, a permanent resident. As she put her hand on the cooler, she turned around to look at John, and she went and said, where's your cards? And she got his cards. So John became a useful diversion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, John or the orphans meet, kind of close And his, his green cards and stuff were all in order, and uh, the cars were mounting up behind us, and she said, just go on, just, just go on, in disgust. So we went, uh, we went to uh, a regathering place, and the group that we were with did not think we were going to be able to pass with me. And they said that we should probably just dump it off with some other missionaries who had freezers in the area. And I told them that we did not drive seven and a half hours to come to a border crossing and be told that we could not feed the orphans. And I said, well, brother, you're, you're full of faith today. No, I didn't tell him. It's not really full of faith. I'm more or less just a little ticked off. Uh, and I, I am not going to be stopped. So we went to the next border crossing. And see, there's a problem. There's cameras and there's guards. 
and we just went to one and they said you cannot bring this in and now we're going to the next one and don't really know whether they can talk. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like they take pictures of your license plate? So when we get to the next one, I've got all of you praying. Many of you got phone calls and texts about this. Yeah. And uh, remember my youngest son's back here, right? You know, not real sure what's going on, just kind of thinks it's neat. And uh, the light was green. So we were excited. I said, yes, yes, y'all, y'all, we're getting it. We're going through. Except it turned red as we were passing. And I got a phone call at the same time. And I answered and I said, hey, we're, we're making it through. Uh, and we got disconnected. I looked up just in time to see uh, a portly Mexican official waving, well, it was an ambiguous wave. Uh, <laughs> whether or not he actually wanted me to pull over or he was just saying, you know, you, you're beautiful, uh, was, was hard to tell. And so I just kept going. And um, as we went, you know, I looked in the rearview mirror. I didn't see anything. We kind of relaxed and said, praise God, we made it, you know, and we're rejoicing. And then this pickup truck with guns and mad Mexicans was in our rearview mirror. We're about four miles into the interior at this point, you know? And uh, all I can say is they did not look very happy. And uh, I have this whole language barrier problem, but I could begin to envision myself on whatever the Mexican versions of cops is, you know? Getting the, the beat down. And uh, I'm praying secretly to myself, Lord, just don't let my son get hurt. Please protect myself. And uh, somewhat angrily, the guy comes to my window and he speaks to me. And, you know, I, I did what all foreigners do. I, eh, no habla. You know? <laughs> and uh, he looked at Abel, and Abel couldn't say no habla. He knew. And uh, Abel began to speak with him. And the long and short of it is he said, you must follow us now. And, uh, you know, it's funny because... For whatever reason, uh, the Hispanic folks uh, have a tendency to look more sweet to me, more kind than they do menacing. But these people were really trying to look menacing. And uh, the route that they took us back to the station was not the route we had just come. So now I'm thinking of all the extortion schemes you've ever heard, uh, all of the little roads that are around us that I don't see anyone else on. And uh, I said, Lord, please protect myself. Please protect my son. You know, my son's not any better than anybody else's son. And bad things happen to people all of the time. And God finds a way to get glory through it, but this is the heart of a father. Finally, we make it back to the station. It takes considerably longer to get back to the station than it did to run from it. I meant drive through it. <laughs> and uh, they pulled us into a stall. And uh, you guessed it, first thing they do is open all of the ice chests. And one official goes and gets another. And they talk for a while. And of course, I can't understand them. I'm just telling the guys, pray, pray, pray. Pray that God put it in their mind just to let us pass. Pray that God put it in their mind just to let us pass. And they're praying. And my little son, he's got the cutest little tongue when he prays, you know. And a Keisha, 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 Lord God, Keisha, Keisha. You know, I don't know what Keisha is, but apparently it's powerful prayer. And uh, five officials come out and we finally get to one a little more robust than the others with a little bigger badge and a white shirt so I figured you know he's chief and uh, he looks they talk they come to the window and I said mm -hmm, no habla <laughs> and uh, he looked at Abel and Abel began to speak with him and uh, he said you know this guy cannot be on his cell phone crossing our border and uh, Abel said okay he said and he must obey the lights he, he went through a red light he must obey the lights yes sir and this meat cannot pass. And uh, Abel said, but it is for the starving children of Matamoros. And he looked at the ground and said, y'all get out of here. Just leave. Just, just leave now. 
and they let us pass. So the orphans are eating today. Saints, we meet resistance with persistence. Too long the church has been a bunch of pansies. Too long the church has yielded to every request of the enemy. We were made to trample upon the enemy. And I tell you what, as much as I did not want to go to a Mexican jail, and certainly did not with my son, I did care more about what would happen to the orphans if they did not eat than me if I went to a Mexican jail. All of the kingdom revolves around a change, a transition that happens in people when we begin to care more about what happens to them if I don't act than me if I do. This was the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. All of the religious people passed by because they cared more about what would happen to them if they stopped. But a Samaritan cared more about what would happen to the man if he did not stop. I encourage you, begin to do what the Word says. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't want to go without a meal, don't watch and willingly let someone else go without a meal. But it might hurt, it might, it, my favorite is, I got back to the States and last night I got a phone call from a relative, horribly, horribly drunk, which made her a wonderful, wonderful voice for the enemy. Said, I am so mad at you, you effing, blah, blah. I was going to play it for you, but I didn't think everybody could, could handle it. And uh, who do you think you are? And on and on and on. Do you think you're invincible? Blah. And from the woman's perspective, she loves me. She don't want me to get hurt. But from the demon that was speaking through her perspective, they were angry because we are doing the work of God. And they're not used to seeing that. First John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Saints, if hungry children is not part of the devil's work, I don't know what is. Okay, you'll turn with me to Exodus 25. Uh, your Bibles, I want you to, this hit me while I was contemplating Mexican jail. Uh, hold your Bible in your hand. We're not going to do that thing of this is the Word of God. I believe it's promises. I, I love it. Uh, whoever came up with it was awesome. But I want you to think about something. This is a book <laughs> drenched in blood. When I say it's drenched in blood, it is an actual witness to a murder. And not only was the murder particularly brutal and worldwide, the men who recorded it were murdered. And not only were those men murdered, but the men who printed the stories afterwards were also murdered. This is one of the bloodiest books in the history of the world. What do you do with a witness, maybe against the mob, who has seen horrible, graphic murders, and you want them to testify? You put them in protective service. I want you to begin to put this book into protective service. Hide it in your heart so the enemy cannot steal it from you. Put it into practice in your life so that it doesn't have to be read. It can be seen in your deeds. There is a reason that the devil has worked against this book. It tells you how to dwell with God, which is man's original problem. Death comes upon us and we are thrown from the presence of God. This book needs to be hidden in your heart. If you don't love it more than anything else in your life, you need to examine it a little more closely because it's a whole lot more important than your car or your house. You know, when something's given to somebody, though, they often don't value it. How much would you pay for a good Bible? I've heard people actually complain, that Bible's $100. This one was a lot more than that. And I'd have paid $10,000. Say, but you can get a Bible anywhere. That's the problem. 
when something is common, in Solomon's day, silver was so common it had no value. What makes it valuable to us is that you find the rare wisdom of God in it. When you put one in every hotel room, in every school kid's hands, put it everywhere, you would think it would be a good thing. But what it's done is it has taught us that familiarity breeds contempt. That's why we leave them on the dashes of our car for weeks on end. You wouldn't do that with a favorite photo. You wouldn't do that with the U.S. Constitution. U.S. Constitution is kind of a cool document, but it does not begin to compare with the written word of God. So turn with me to Exodus 25. That's kind of a sermon before the sermon, and now I have to work because I'm behind. Y'all, I am uh, so blessed. If Abel had not been with me in Mexico, I, I really think that would not have went well for me. If John had not been there, I don't think the orphans would have gotten the food. Uh, I told Gabriel, I, I don't know, when Judah goes with me, I never have these problems. <laughs> I said, Dad, what are you saying? I said, I'm not, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Ava told me at the, uh, at the soup kitchen, she uh, said that the little brother, the little hermano, was the best looking one I had brought yet. <laughs> I was glad Gabe couldn't understand that. His head's already pretty large. Are you on Exodus 25? Yeah. We're going to start in the first verse. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring an offering, to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and fragrant incense. And onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. Breast piece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God makes a promise that if the people will respond to them, Him, He will respond to them. And He says, I will dwell among you. As I began to look into this idea of dwelling, it's kind of strange because different translations use different words. And when we thought about dwell, you might could just say, I will live among them. And I found out there's more than one Hebrew word that means to live or to dwell. God did not say, I will simply stay with them. He did not say, I will simply make my residence with them. There's a word for that. When you just go reside in a place, you live there like, uh, like I live in Sugarland. It's called Yasab. That's Y-A-S-A-B, Yasab. It's a phonetic spelling. If you like to look it up, it's in Strong's. It's the um, 3,427th entry. And that means to live or to reside. The word that God used is something more than that. And it's why it's translated dwell in the NIV. It's Shakan, like S-H-A-K-A-N, Shakan. Shakan's used 129 times in the Hebrew Tanakh, the Older Testament. Usually when it's used, like the 43 times it's used to refer to the way that God dwells somewhere, it underscores something. I don't just live here, I'm near to it. I'm close to it. I'm intertwined with it. And, Strong says, it indicates permanent residence. 
something that is not going to be repealed. It's not, I'm just going to stay here for a while, then I'm going to go somewhere else. When you say Yasab, it could mean that. I lived here, then I lived there, then, you know, like some of the folks say today, where you stay, where you stay at, as if it will change at any moment. God didn't say he was going to stay with the Israelites. He said, I will dwell, take a permanent, close nearness, intertwine myself with you. I will dwell with you. Turn with me to Numbers uh, 35. We're going to look at the 34th verse. You can keep your finger where you're at. I don't want to get off track, but I, I'm, I'm too close to this scripture not to read it. So uh, look at the 33rd verse. Do not pollute the land where you are. Where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. And atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. This is totally off subject, but I, how could I read past that and not tell you this? You ever read the verse that said, let his blood be upon our head and our children's head? Mm -hmm. That sounds like such a horrible curse. And it is. If an Israelite's blood polluted the land, whose blood can cleanse the land? An Israelite's, that's what it said. The crucifixion both polluted the land and healed it. Jesus was the Passover lamb killed by Israel for Israel. That's not our topic, though. Our topic is in this next verse. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell. Do not defile the land where you, Yasab, where you, where you stay, and where I dwell, where I'm near, close, intertwined with, where my permanent residence is. For I, the Lord, Shekan, dwell among the Israelites. The Lord contrasts the two ideas. He contrasts the idea of you're here and it's temporary. I will be here forever. He said that about the land of Israel. More specifically, he says it about a place where he would cause the goodness of his name to dwell. And as I began to look at all of the dwelling scriptures, all of the times God said he would dwell, it always had to do with a vessel, a container. Whether it was the land, a temple, or a box like the Ark of the Testimony, or an altar. It always had to do with indwelling something that had been made according to a very, very specific pattern. Before we get into that, I do want to tell you... Well, let's read this real quick. Exodus 29. We were in Exodus 25, then we were in Numbers, now we're in Exodus 29. Look at the 45th verse. Then I will dwell be near, close to, permanently reside among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Do you see what's next? Make something out of acacia wood, he said. By the way, if you flip back to Exodus 25 when he promises to dwell with them in the 25th chapter 8 verse, the next thing that he does is make an ark out of acacia wood. It seems that there's this idea between a vessel, a land, a people group that God would dwell in, and a God who desires to permanently reside, be near to, close with, intertwined with people as his residence. In a moment, we're going to go back and look at the kind of vessel that God will fill. But before we do that, we need to go to 2 Chronicles. I want to show you the difference between what man asks for and what God gives. In 2 Chronicles, you're going to be in the 6th chapter. 
Wow, those pages slow down. It's almost like you don't go to Chronicles a lot. You don't see anybody at a baseball game holding up a sign that says Second Chronicles, do you? Why is that? Why is one verse in John more important than all of the rest of the revelation of God? The answer is it's not. But Americans, we just want to boil it down to the simplest possible thing. Just say Jesus is Lord. Yeah, but what if you're lying through your teeth when you say it? Just believe that God raised him from the dead. What good would that do you if you believed it the same way you believe there may be a Bigfoot? Mm -hmm. If you don't believe it to the extent that it affects your behavior, if you don't make the confession with your mouth to the extent that it is becoming true in your life, He is my Lord, meaning I do what He says. You know, I've often thought that there may be sea monsters. I mean, two-thirds of the world's oceans are unexplored, of the deep water even more than that. Every once in a while, strange things wash up. But I don't believe it enough to stake my children's future on it. Mm -hmm. But when the Lord tells me something, I believe it enough to stake even my children's lives upon it. In what way do you believe the Lord? Because He'll only accept one kind. Are you in Second Chronicles? Yes. Second Chronicles 6. Let's start in the 12th verse. Then Shlomo... That's Hebrew for Solomon. It's the nickname. Then Shlomo stood... It's kind of fun to say though, isn't it? Shlomo? Yeah. Then Shlomo stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and he spread out his hands. It's funny. Things have been fought in denominational churches over this. Whether you're this denomination or that, I really could care less. It has to do with building walls between each other that put ceilings between us and God. And do we pray like this? 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 And then how do you baptize? And in what name? And we fight wars over this stuff. Do you know that the Hebrew word Hillel, the H in Hillel is the Hebrew vowel hey, and what it is in its earliest pictographs is a man standing like this? When they prayed, they raised their hands. Every time you see this, and Paul even says, I want you to do this without wrath or malice. But we'll fight over things like this. Why? Now, if you don't pray that way, I could care less. If your heart is inclined towards God, you can be baptized with a big gulp cup, with a seashell like some of my Lutheran friends. You know, we just shoveled water from one container to another on you. You can go down into the water. You can come out of the water. You can stay under the water. It doesn't matter. These are conditions of your heart. But how do you ignore repeated things in the Word? Oh, well, you just don't know it. Because as Americans, we've been trained to walk into a church and say, what exactly do you believe? Define it in 14 points or less. Let's all agree on it and then never veer from that. Let's put a neat little box that we can throw God into and He will be contained by it and we'll tell everybody, look at our God. Isn't that great? This is what God does and does not do. How well has that worked for anybody that has tried to do it? When I was a Baptist brother, and I, in some ways I still am, I believe in baptism. None of my friends believed that it was wrong to dance. But the church said it was, so we just didn't acknowledge it publicly. When we got into the Word a little bit, we had problems with other doctrines too, but we just didn't talk about it publicly. When I was in Lafayette, Louisiana, none of my Catholic friends actually believed the Pope was infallible. They believed that he was a man. But they didn't talk about it publicly. Well, what good are these little rules if you find out they are not always right, and you're scared to challenge them even when the Word says differently. They're not any good. You better put your hope in what the Word says. And wherever you are, 
You are not a Methodist. You are not a Lutheran. You are not a Charismatic. You are a believer in Yeshua, a follower of the way. You may attend a Methodist church, a Lutheran church, a Baptist church, a crazy Charismatic Pentecostal Holiness church. Doesn't matter. We're all crazy. I attend all of those churches. I'll shave if I need to shave. We'll have Jim fix her hair different if that's what. It does not matter to me. I'm not hung up in the details. I just want to see God move. I want to see people moved by Him. Isn't that a lot better than giving people litmus tests when you meet them? How do you baptize? In what name do you baptize? Does your wife wear men's clothes? What? Jesus wore something that looked like a dress. What are you talking about? But have you never met that? Yes. Have you ever been that way? My favorite was to go into a church with Casey and Michelle, and the whole church rushed down to meet me. Right? They all prayed for me because I had a beard, and I had to be lost if I had a beard. I made their day. Because I danced and praise God, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. They all went home that night and said, we saw a sinner saved. Well, they did. I was a sinner and I'm saved. That's okay. God is not into all of those little rules. He's not. He can move even under one of those funny hats. He can move with a clerical collar. He can move anywhere. It's us who has the problem with it. Are you in Second Chronicles? Because I need to get back there. I'm in trouble already. So Shlomo stands, he spreads out his hands, 13th verse. Now he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and he placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on the earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You want to have a fun Bible study sometime, look up the word wholeheartedly. What a blessing that is. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father, and your, with your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Do you hear that Hebrew concept? Your mouth speaks something, and your hands fulfill it. Your mouth speaks it, and your hands do it. This is why a Jewish apostle named Paul says it's with your mouth you make confession. He's assuming that your hands will follow the confession. This is why James teaches all the things that he does. Now the Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you have made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law. Do you hear that? Not to believe my law. Not to recite it. Not to put it in creed. To walk before me according to the law. To a Hebrew, your belief is shown in what you do with your hands and what you do with your feet. I believe God wants to save the children in Mexico. Really? Do you believe it enough to put down your remote control? To get off of your salvation and move? My favorite thing is, Eric, have you prayed about going? Yeah. Thanks, I, that never occurred to me. Have you prayed about staying? Uh. <laughs> Did you pray about the Big Mac you just ate? Did you pray about that show you're watching? Why is it we only have to pray about the difficult things God tells us to do? But you don't have to pray about eating a chocolate bar, do you? Because God obviously wants us to. I don't mean to be quiet. I really do mean to be that sarcastic, but I don't mean it to be hurting. I want to build us up, and the thing is, is we need to challenge. We need to shake our inward thoughts, and we need to examine why we do some of the things that we do. 
You know, maybe we just do them because it's been our environment and it shaped us. Who walk according to my law, as you have done. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. Listen to the question in front of all of the people. But will God really dwell on earth among men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. He is concerned. He's built this temple. Now this word's translated dwell, but it's really the lesser meaning that I told you about. It's really yasab. What he's saying is, God, will you really live even temporarily? Will you, will you inhabit this temple? What did God already tell it? God had already said through the word, I won't just live there. I'll be near. I'll be close. I'll be intertwined in a permanent way. And he's asking, God, will you simply live there? And this really is the difference in the heart of the religious man and the man who is experiencing God. One just wants God close enough that if there's a problem, we can call to him. One just wants God close enough that it says, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all good, we're all saved here. Go look somewhere else. The other wants God close enough that our lives are intertwined like we are married. We care about each other's thoughts. We care about what's going on in each other's will and lives. One has to do with simply residing next to, the other has to do with cohabitating with, setting up residence inside of each other's will. You remember that Jesus prayed like that? I am in my Father, my Father is in me. You are in me, and I am in my Father. And go read John 18. It's in the New Testament. You might like that, right? One's not new, and the other old. It's all one big, beautiful book. One's a little older, one's a little newer, but it's one contiguous re revelation. Not old as in, throw it away. Any of you want some old toothpaste? <laughs> old dishwashing detergent? Yeah. Old milk? Why do we call it the Old Testament? It's not old in that sense. It is one revelation of God from beginning to end. Saved by grace through faith, beginning to end. If you have a problem with that concept, a man named Marcion introduced a lie to the church that there's a separation, two different gods, two different testaments. We could spend some time talking about it, and I will prove beyond any shadow of a doubt to you that God is a God of grace, salvation by faith in the Old and New Testament. You cannot read the Psalms and come away with any other thought. But will God really dwell on earth with men? He said, the heavens can't contain you. His whole thought is, God, you're too big to live in this house. Are you really going to set up a residence there? How did God answer him? By the way, he goes on to pray, please be near us. Please be close to us when we pray. Please hear us. He's really not asking that God just live there, although that's what he said. He wants to be intertwined with God. What did God do? In the seventh chapter, in the first verse, when Shlomo finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The vessel they were praying about was the temple. When he said, Lord, are you really going to live with us? God's promise had not been that he would live with them. It would be that he would dwell closely, connected, in a permanent way with them. And when the question was asked, he answered with fire from heaven that could be seen so that all the bystanders would have no doubt. And it said, he filled that vessel. It sounds like the God of heaven really is intent on dwelling with his people. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 16. If you've never read the book of Deuteronomy all the way through, you are some kind of missing out. If you've heard that it will bind you up and that it's all the law and it's like a shackle around your neck that points out sin. 
If you read the New Testament and it doesn't point out your sin, something's wrong with you. Something is wrong with you. But if you can read the New Testament and both feel convicted of sin and empowered towards life, then certainly you can read the Older Testament and have the same experience. Say, but there's all the blood and guts in it. You're right. The New Testament has no blood and guts. Judas hung himself. His bowels spilled open into the field. Jesus was crucified. You're right. No blood and guts. There is no difference, saints. The difference is in us and how much you want to accept of God's revelation. Are you in Deuteronomy 16? Yes. 16, look at the ninth verse. This is the Feast of Weeks. Hebrews call it Shavuot. The Greek word to say it is Pentecost. And it means that there is a series of weeks followed by a feast. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost or Shavuot, to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. God's all into this whole free will, not compelled free will offering. It's amazing. It's one way that we have to show, Lord, nobody compels me to do this. I just love you. and The best way I know to show you is to give you something that's precious to me. It happens over and over and over. I don't want your stuff. I'm not telling you that. It's God that wants a response in your heart. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place He will choose as a dwelling for His name. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants, your maid servants, the Levites in your town. He goes on to say aliens, fatherless, widows, all of these groups of people. He wants them to rejoice because God had chosen a dwelling, a shakan, a place where he would be interactive with them. He'd be near to them, close with them. When did he tell them this? He told them this while he was teaching them about Pentecost. How about that? Turn with me to the New Testament. You can look at John 1. 14, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you what it says, but you can look while you're there. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He did not just live with men. He was not aloof walking around with a separation between clergy and laity. He did not just stand on a stage and hold up His life as an example from a distance. He interacted in a close, personal way with the people. He went where the prostitutes were, where the tax collectors were, where the drunks were, and he was dwelling with them. The Word of God dwelt, not simply lived, but dwelt among men. And when we read about that, we find hope. We find encouragement. But what did they do to that flesh? That's right, they killed it. This book is a witness to that testimony. They killed the physical incarnation of God that indicated His desire to dwell with the people. So God presented a solution. Turn with me to Acts 2. <coughs> when the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost is Shavuot. It's the, the Feast of Weeks. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. You ever been at a crawfish boil? Yes. Boy, that's a appealing thought, isn't it? If you haven't been at a crawfish boil, certainly you've seen a movie where a flamethrower was used. Or you've had an opportunity in school to use a Bunsen burner. Or at some point in your life, you have had fire raging by you. It sounds like rushing wind, especially if it's being propelled out. Violent rushing wind. 
It's little curls that it produces as the flames flicker around are referred to as tongues of fire. It has nothing to do with this thing in your mouth. Violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Do you think it is any mistake that the God of the universe chose Pentecost as a day in which He would show up by fire to dwell with the people? He had told them, they asked questions of him, will you really live with us? He said, I'll do more than that. I will dwell with you. I'm going to interact with you in a close, personal way and on a permanent basis. Will you really do it? Yes, count off weeks from the time this happens to the time this happens and be waiting. And the Lord had always answered in the past with Solomon's temple, with David's tabernacle, when Elijah prayed in other times, by fire from heaven. In fact, the people of God had followed God's presence as a pillar of fire. So there was no problem in their mind associating fire coming from the direction of heaven towards men with the filling and dwelling of God among His people. Why do you think the devil has worked so hard to keep this from happening? He would rather you live next door to God than have God live inside of you. He would rather you say, Lord, will you really live by me? You know? Will really you'll be there if I call to you at a distance? When what God really wants is to be inside of you. He wants to speak in your ear, say, This is the way, walk in it. There is the way, walk in it. He wants to do what John 14 says, show you things that will come. He wants to witness of his word to you. Those of you that have Pentecostal or charismatic backgrounds. I want you to notice something. This has nothing to do. We're not speaking at all about manifestations of gifts. That'd be another message. We're talking about God's desire to set up residence in your life. Don't allow yourself to get hung up in doctrine that says, but they believe that and I know what they're getting at. Who cares what they are getting at? If somebody wants to make you a Boy Scout marriage badge for their church, something's wrong. What I want is you to interact with the living God. Not simply in a way that you're neighbors, but more like a married couple. You're intimate with each other. This has always been His desire. Do you live with God or do you dwell with God? It's funny, in English we have this phrase. We say, well, look, brother, just dwell on it a while. Okay? What does that mean? It means to meditate on it, contemplate it, interact with it. You never say, brother, just, just live on it a while. You'd never say that. Like what? Live? I, I, I exist. I'm existing right now. What does that mean? When we dwell, it is something more than just existing with Him. It's interacting with Him. It's a closeness. I tell you, saints, you can start in dwelling just like you can start in a marriage and move towards separate lives. And religion does it all of the time. You're doing all of the right things, but something's gone. There's a scab on your heart. You don't, when He enters the room anymore. It's all familiar, just like our Bibles. You have to knock the baby skin off. Look at Revelation 21. Knock the skin off so that it's like baby skin. I have this burn on my knee. And uh, it's little. It's so little that it's embarrassing to admit. But I tell you, when you clean it and the skin comes off, it has a very loud voice for such a little bit. So much so that I really am not enjoying wearing pants. Uh, shorts, yes, pants, no. Aren't you glad that I can wear shorts? And uh, 
a sensitivity to the Holy Ghost where something that could be a seemingly insignificant, unseeable thing in your life can have a loud voice. It's what God's looking for. So that when you're like Philip and you hear the Spirit say, there's a man, you run in that direction. You don't hold the committee. You don't say, you know, we've lived next to God for some time period now, and He's established these 14 points that we move within. How do you all feel like this request relates to those points? Where is the biblical precedent for hawking a loogie into mud and making an eyeball with it? Can anybody find that? No, but Jesus did it, didn't he? Don't confine what you think God will and won't do based on your understanding of doctrine. Doctrine was meant to be a servant to you, to aid in your understanding about God. It was never meant to be a master to you that said, you shall not fellowship with Adam because Adam thinks differently than Mario. And Mario thinks differently than Mandy. So what you really need is three churches on this one street. It was never meant to do that. One says, I believe in a trinity. Another says, I believe in a triunity. And a third says, it's all one. And all three are right. And they are caught up in semantics fighting over it. Say, but the, the implications of that doctrine are far-reaching and it's wrong and it's, and it's further. But are we really dealing with that? Or are we just one brother talking to another about an expression of something that is truly beyond words? Trust me, I will fight with you over doctrine. Don't get me wrong. But it is certainly not the master in our lives. I found out working with some missionaries, some of them got some crazy doctrine and they think the same thing about me. But if they're feeding orphans, you tell me what's more important. What they think about a Greek preposition or what they're doing with their hands yes. and doing with their feet. Right. So I believe in pre-trib. I believe in post-trib. I believe in mid-trib. I believe in special cake. I like that, Siri. <laughs> so Eric, are you saying it doesn't matter? Yes, it matters a great deal to me. Y'all know me. I pour over this word. I am mining it day and night. And I have probably too strong of an opinion about a great many things. But I'm not going to let that keep me from working with somebody that is keeping children alive. That's right. We find every excuse in the world not to dwell with God. In Revelation 21, I just wanted to share this with you and then we're going to move back to our text and hopefully wrap this up. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. If you're waiting for the actual ball of dirt to go away, you need to go read what Paul said in Corinthians. Paul said that the old man had passed away. That we were a new creation. That all things had become new. And I still pretty much look like the same old guy. Right? My sister is a totally new creature. But she's still recognizable as my sister. And yet the Bible calls her new. We're not talking about a new planet. We're talking about a completely renovated planet. Built specifically for God to dwell in. See, because when God fills something, it's got to be a vessel of His design according to His pattern. Or He will not do it. We're going to go back and examine that in a minute. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God he will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Despite everything you see around you, all of man's efforts have not produced 
the wiping away of every tear. They have not produced the end of death. All of man's efforts, whether philanthropy, kindness, charity, anything that it is, have never solved the basic problems of humanity. But God is beginning to shape a vessel first in you, then in the church at large. Which comes into Israel, by the way. The prince with God. And then the world itself. And his goal is to interact with the creation on a permanent basis, residing in it, moving through it, changing it, fixing all of its problems so that you can pray and it be true. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is not some faraway place. I mean, it is the third and highest heaven, but it is headed this way. And when God's people act like God, others are getting a glimpse of what heaven on earth will be. The city is coming down. It is enveloping the earth. And he likens the city, which is Israel grafted into the church as one new nation. He likens it unto a bride. Because his relationship with his people is supposed to be intimate like a husband and wife. And I don't have to go into the graphic parts of that, but it is pregnant in this text. It is absolutely the consummation of a marriage and it results in you having a completely new body. One that death never touches again. One that reflects his glory. That's a pretty good promise, isn't it? We better find out what is required of us. Turn back to Exodus 25. Whether Exodus 25 or Exodus 29 or 2 Chronicles 6 or Revelation 21, God only fills vessels according to His design. In fact, back to our very beginning text, we will read it and we'll close with it. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. Exodus 25, 8 and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Don't make it kind of the way I will show you. Don't make it a little bit like it. Make it exactly like what I will show you. Because God intended to dwell there and it had to be according to a pattern that was shown. We can learn something when we examine the pattern of the Ark of Testimony that He dwelt in. You can learn something when you examine the temple that He dwelt in. You can learn something when you examine the pattern of the nation that He dwelt in because all of them had to be designed by God, which meant they'd be empty of themselves, they had to be renovated, they had to be made new. The whole thing is going to happen to the whole earth, but it starts with your life. The kingdom does not come with your careful observation so that you say, there it is, or here it is. It starts inside of you. The king's dominion begins in your life when you say, yes, Lord, I will change and conform to the pattern you are showing me right now. Yes, Lord, I will. When you begin to say, yes, Lord, and it's true because you are doing it, the kingdom is inside of you like yeast working its way through leaven and you become contagious, and everyone around you is being affected by it, so that when one man is saved in one family, you can be assured, given enough time, every one of them will be. It is supposed to infect the entire world. He started with 12, and you number your checks by the date of his birth today, all these thousands of miles and thousands of years away, because they did their job. And when they said yes, they meant it. You ready? 
Have them make a chest of acacia wood. It's funny, this word is almost always translated ark. But here the NIV left it as chest because they want to emphasize to you this is at its basic and foremost purpose a container for something. God said, I'm going to dwell among them. Make a container. Have them make a chest of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Before we get to the next verse, I want to tell you, acacia is an amazing thing. I'm very glad that the NIV has chosen to translate it based on a Greek rendering, acacia, because the Hebrew is pretty rough. It sounds like a dirty word in English, and if you have an NIV or King James Bible, you have a hard time reading this word to kids. They all snicker. It's kind of like the donkey rendering in the older Testament. Uh, in any case, I got a chance to see acacia trees. I said, Lord, when you filled the Ark of Testimony, it was acacia wood. When you made the poles for it, it was acacia wood. When you made your temple, it was acacia wood. When you made your altar, it was acacia wood. Acacia shows up all over the place. And I live in South Louisiana at the time. I've never seen acacia. I don't understand. What is it? While I was in the desert in Israel, we got a chance to ride camels to a place. And on the way, the guy said, look, those are, he used a different word for it, but it was acacia trees. It's beautiful. They have this canopy around them. There's a little bit like a big umbrella. He called it a desert air conditioner because he said that this big umbrella would provide shade for you. Acacias are so deeply rooted in the earth, their root system does not stretch out like an oak tree at all. They go straight down. I mean, absolutely straight down, and they wrap around a rock near a water source. Wow. If an acacia short, uh, tree is growing, there is water beneath it. Then the way that the seeds populate, the way that the seeds leave one tree and move, because uh, they're moved by the wind, there's always a gentle breeze by the acacia trees. There's water beneath the earth, there's a gentle breeze above the earth, or they will not grow, they will not take root, they have no other means of populating. So you know you can sit in the shade, you can dig for water, and there will be a gentle wind. They love that they point them out everywhere. Acacias are funny though. Their bark is always orangish brown and it's poisonous. Sometimes great big thorns, sometimes small thorns, sometimes the thorns have multiple thorns on them, sometimes they're single thorns. There's different varieties of this. It's, Lord, why on earth would you use acacias for everything? It's not a particularly giant tree. I could cut down the oak tree in my yard and make the ark easy. You'd have to cut down a few acacia trees to do this. He has to uproot this deeply, deeply, deeply from the earth. He has to remove it from whatever's been watering it all of its life so that it would be dependent upon something else. Something else has to happen to acacia. You can't handle it. You can't work with it. You can't do anything with it until you have stripped away that poisonous outer exterior. He began to speak with me. At that time in my life, my poisonous outer exterior was long singular thorns that said, I'm tougher than you. I'm macho. And he began to show me how he was stripping back those layers. Because when you remove these layers, what you find is beautiful ivory-like white wood. I began to think, but Lord, there's so many different kinds of outer coatings on these acacias. And there are on people too. Sometimes it's not macho and tough. Sometimes it's wounded. I'm so hurt. Look at me. The only way I could find any worth, the only way I could get any attention is if somebody is giving me sympathy or pity. Sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes it's I'm very smart. I'm intellectual. Look at me. I'm smarter than you. Other times it's I have no emotions. I can't be hurt. Look at me. I'm stoic. 
Andy and I used to work for a place called the Pain Care Center, and we saw the worst of the worst medical problems. Whatever could not be cured, whatever had been given a vague disease as a label, which really meant we don't know what's wrong with you, so we throw you into this category. Those people fell into categories sometimes called the identified patient. What it meant is the only way that I know how to relate to anything anymore is I'm the one who's hurt. I can't get off the couch and do this because, remember, I'm hurt. I can't do that because, remember, I'm hurt. I want you to interact with me only on the basis of your understanding. I'm hurt. It's amazing how many human beings can fit into that category. Just as many can fit into the macho, I can't be hurt. Just as many as can fit into the emotionless, I cannot be hurt. Just as many as could fit into the Romeo, look at me, everybody loves me. All of these are facades. What God is looking to do is strip these things away that we have used to protect ourselves from His presence. If people knew that you weren't that tough, if they knew that you weren't that fragile, if they knew that you weren't that smart, how would they really think about you? We spend a lifetime putting on these facades. It starts in junior high. It actually starts before that. Do you know that my daughter, Abby, came downstairs the other day wearing a Band-Aid on her neck? Said she had a boba. Why do you think Abby wore a Band-Aid on her neck saying she had a boba? She saw everybody was paying attention to Jan because Jan had a bobo on her neck. We teach Abby. Abby, we don't glory in our bobos. We throw them in the trash because Jesus heals them. So Abby will have to learn that just like my kids did. Teach a young man, it is not your fists that make you tough. It's your ability to follow God when others will not. You teach somebody who is trying to be devoid of emotion to show everybody that they can't be heard. You have to embrace your emotion. This is what makes you a man. Look, Jesus wept. He leaped. He smiled. We have to strip away the outer facade because God wants to do something and it has to do with dwelling. Look at verse 11. Overlay it with pure gold. You are still you. Once this has been stripped away, Wade still looks like Wade. Allison still looks like Allison. But now we are overlaid with something that did not originate with us. Once the outer exterior is removed, something else can be hammered into it, poured on top of it, overshadowing, overlaying it. And it is the divinity, the character, the presence, the Spirit of our God. Everything that was made of acacia wood was stripped the inward soft parts of it revealed and then it was either hammered or overlaid with gold. Overlay it with pure gold both inside and out. No part of it could be untouched by the divinity of God if it was going to be used for God and dwelt by God. Sometimes we're good at wearing the gold on the outside but inside we're thinking I hate it when he says that. <laughs> I ought to give him a piece of my mind or something else. Or when I was lost, I would. They don't understand me. I'm so broken and hurt. I just need to show them because they don't understand. It's all sin. It is all sin. Self-centered sin. And it's got to get stripped away. So that whatever you are, whether weak or strong, whether smart or stupid, whether very emotional or not all that emotional, you are Christ. Inside and out. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet and two rings on one side and two rings on the other. <laughs> it's funny, I don't want to get into all of the numbers here, 
But four is always the number of man's relationship to God. There are four commandments that deal with it. There are four horns on an altar that help you get your relationship right with God. There are four gospels that teach you how to get your relationship right with God. And it goes on and on and on. Four cherubim on the throne of God that interact between God and man. It goes on and on and on. And two is always the number of covenant in the Bible. So this chest that would be overlaid and inlaid with gold would be supported on a man's relationship with God. And it would be carried through the use of a covenant. See, they would stick these poles, also made of acacia, also overlaid, and it had to be carried on men's shoulders so that what people would see is that God dwells on men's shoulders because He desires to have a relationship with them through a covenant. This is why a man got struck dead for putting it upon an ox. It was not oxen that God wanted a covenant with. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. You can have no relationship with God except in covenant with Him. His glory will not dwell with you, will not go with you, will not reside in you outside of His covenant. Then put the ark Put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Greg is an ark. God is stripping him of his outer appearance. He is inlaying him inside and out with gold. He has established a relationship with Greg based upon a covenant. And he is putting inside of him a testimony. So that wherever he goes, people will go... That's one that God has done something for. That's one that is overcoming because of what God has done in their life. Does not the book of Revelation tell us they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony? He is putting a testimony in you. And you know what is not a testimony? The outward skin of the acacia. I am so hurt. I am so tough. I am so this, that, or that. It's all the arm of man. Whether the weakness or strength of man, it is all man. What people need to know about you is what God has done in you. Why is it that events define people the way they do? Why is that? Why is one guy a hero forever because he caught a pig's bladder wrapped in pigskin on a gridiron field somewhere? Why is he a hero all of his life for that? Why is somebody else a failure because at one time in their life they let something down? Friends, strip it all away. Whatever you are, let it be God's work being hammered in you, out of you, all around you. Be Him. Be Christ. Don't allow yourself to be identified as the one who's always sick. Don't allow yourself to be identified as the one that is tough and can get anything done. Allow yourself to only be identified as the one who does what God tells him to do. Got one more verse to read to you. Will you take one more verse from me? Yes. Good, because you're going to get it anyway. Verse 17. Make an atonement cover of pure gold. Two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. So many things were overlaid. So many things were hammered. The atonement cover was neither hammered nor overlaid. It simply was pure God. Pure gold. See, all of us have come into covenant with Him, if you are in covenant with Him, because He is working in you to strip things that don't belong, to hammer in things that do. But it's not naturally you. It's all come from Him. But the atonement, the one who has provided blood 
so that when God looks at you, He sees perfection. He was pure God through and through. No tool was used on Him. He wasn't overlaid. He wasn't hammered. He was just pure divine. So that Colossians has all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Him. Saints, you can take every dwelling of God in the Scripture, whether it is the Ark of the Covenant or testimony if you prefer, whether it's the temple or the whole planet in the end, and you can see God is shaping it to something that He can dwell in. Is He shaping you so that He can dwell in you? Because that really is what we need to dwell with God. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll pray together, we'll eat together, we'll fellowship, we'll do whatever you guys would like to do. But if you walk out of this building and that word goes in one ear and out the other, you are really missing out. I see so much faith in so many of your eyes. I really do. For the first time in my life, first time in many years in my life, I'm surrounded by not just one or two, but tens of tens that will do whatever God tells them to do. That's why we have the courage to cross borders when others won't. It's why we start ambitious projects and believe God will finish them. It's because we're not alone anymore. Not only am I dwelling with God, I have brothers that are dwelling with God. That means we have a community of believers and we strengthen each other every time we're together. There is nothing that we cannot do. We can chase thousands upon thousands in His name. We just have to be shaped according to the pattern He shows us. <coughs> Mighty God, Lord, we love You. We ask that Your divine hand would shape us that it would remake us. Lord, we're not upset with the way that we are. You have made us to be beautiful. But Lord, there are so many things about our lives that aren't beautiful that must go. Lord, we pray that Your attention is the attention we would seek. That Your interaction is the interaction we would seek. With all of our hearts, we long for You. Fill us in every way to all the fullness of God that we might see your power working to change our lives and everyone else around us. We love you and we commit our lives to you. Amen. 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 All right, saints. Y'all go get some food. Have a good time.